we can look at the world and really understand so much about the world, but then miss how it's directing us towards God. We can be in relationship with other people and we can use them for ends that have nothing to do with God. And the goal of our life is to be with God, to have a pure heart devoted to God who is love. Well, welcome to the Great Tradition Podcast. Uh, I'm Ian, and this is Alec, and we want to learn from the 2,000 years of Christians who came before us uh, because we believe it helps us become more like God. Uh, and we got a really cool episode for you. Uh, right now, we are in the middle of this conversation about the Bible. We're asking questions like, what is the Bible? How did we get it? How do we read it? Is there a way that we read the Bible today that's the same or different from how Christians have read it throughout history? Uh, lots of great questions. Uh, but today, we are going to talk about a foundational issue that involves uh, something beyond the Bible. Uh, actually, today, we're talk the, the, the title of today's topic is God Beyond the Bible. Uh, and I'll be honest, I'm not exactly sure how to even explain what I mean when I say that. And the reason is because this isn't my conversation to lead. This is Alex's conversation. This is uh, related to um, his thesis, actually, when he was uh, working on his master's degree. So I'll kind of turn it over to you now, Alec. What are we talking about today? Yeah. So before we really jump into like the big content, um, I want to start in a weird place with Pascal's wager. You know, uh, a lot of people are familiar with this. There's this. Um, wager this philosophical argument for you know the belief in god where it's like okay um god either exists or he doesn't and we're playing a game where we flip a coin and you have to wager on whether he exists or doesn't and if you you don't wager then you automatically lose and so you either get it right or you don't you know and so it's better to wager, Pascal argues, that God is real because if he's not real, then, you know, everything in life is vain. Um, but if he is real, you know, then like, like, like if everything in life is vain, then you don't really lose anything. But if he is real, then you're risking all of eternity on this bet. So you always want to bet on the side of eternity. It's just like the logical thing to do. But like when I heard that argument when I was a kid, my papa told it to me. You know, he was my grandpa on my mom's side. Um, he really, he was a spiritual mentor to me um, in some real powerful ways. He led me into the faith. But like when he told me that, it's, it made it sound like this mental ascent thing. And as a, the other, you know, month I was reading Pascal myself, um, audiobooking it. And I realized that what he's saying isn't, it's just like this mental ascent thing. Like you want to just believe in your head and then, you know, sort of like say, I have to mentally ascent to God. What he's saying when he's talking about belief is he, he's calling people to wager in the sense of living their lives differently. Live your life as though God existed. Because if you do that, even if you don't have faith, you might receive faith by living the life of faith. And I feel like a lot of us Christians live 
as though we flip the coin and we sort of can say in this face value sort of way, yeah, God exists, you know, he's he's probably the best wager, um, but then we don't actually place our bet. We don't live in accordance with the wager. We don't call the bet, confess the name, and then act like every area in our life um, should be devoted to, you know, the end or toward like the reality that God exists. Um, and we remain caught in what Charles Taylor calls the, and I'm going to use a technical word, the imminent frame. The, the frame that Pascal actually talks about earlier in his writings, where we have these, these instincts prompting us to look for diversion, um, for distractions, and from you know, different occupations, things that we do um, to distract us from the pain that we feel when we're alone with ourselves. You know, he says in a different place, death is easier to bear without thinking about it. Um, in fact, it's easier than, you know, the danger of almost being killed. When you're sitting alone on your bed and you're thinking about the big thoughts in life, that's more difficult than experiencing danger. Mm. That reality is something that I think that reality of sitting alone with God is something that we really need to embrace as Christians if we want to grow. Like that's that's a deep, that's a heavy, that's a hard thing to say, but that's that's the reality. And so what I want to talk about is that reality because we can read the Bible and we can read it as a scholarly text. We can read, you know, we can look at the world and really understand so much about the world, but then miss how it's directing us towards God. We can be in relationship with other people and we can use them for ends that have nothing to do with God. And the goal of our life, okay, and this is something that I'm, I'm looking forward a bit to the four senses, you know, which I'll explain what that is later, but the goal of life is to be with God, to have a pure heart devoted to God who is love and to be in love with him and devote every last moment to full-souled contemplation, thought, and devotion in our, our minds and our lives toward God so that nothing distracts us from him and that the daily distractions in life become redeemed. That's what I want to talk about. But to get there, there's a few, you know, sort of theological things that that found that that lead us um, that that we base, you know, ourselves on in order to um, to enter into that reality. So just right now, let me open it up. Ian, what do you think? You got any questions, comments? Well, I think. No, no crucifixions, definitely. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, not, 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 not on this podcast. Um, you, you started to talk about like what the end goal is for this idea of contemplating God with everything. Um, and I might be jumping the gun a little bit, but you're talking about this thing that the ancient desert fathers referred to as pursuing purity of heart. Um, and I, it might be beneficial 
to just touch on that a little bit before you even get into what you're talking about. Because I think even the nature of this conversation is mm -hmm. a little bit of a paradigm shift for many of us. Um, not just the idea that we can use whatever to contemplate God because he's everywhere, but 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 even the assumption beneath that. Because for many of us, when we talk about the idea of salvation, we talk about a destination, right? I mean, you think about like the, the classic preacher thing, like where are you going when you die? You go into the good place or the bad place? And that this is obviously a part of the whole thing. But this whole conversation assumes that God's desire for us is more is about more than just going to heaven. I got James 1 in my mind uh, where he talks about uh, how God uses everything in our lives uh, so we can become perfect or the way the New International Version translates it. So you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. You know, I, I think we don't always realize that this is actually a part of what salvation is. It's this ongoing transformative experience and it it starts with forgiveness for, from your sin but it continues on and it ultimately makes you into someone uh who looks like god uh you're going to talk about john cashin this guy who represented the early christian monks uh, in a bit but you know uh we, we become someone as cashin stated it uh who is actually pure in heart you know what i'm talking about i do and actually that's something that i want to touch on um and that's that's really like so I'm working with this idea of salvation and this idea of our world where it's like we live in a world that's a sponge and it's soaked with divinity. It's dripping with divinity. Our whole world is. And so like with that assumption, and I could back this up with Bible verses, you know, like Ephesians 2, you know, we're saved by grace uh, through faith. Um, it's not of yourselves it's a it's a gift of god so that no one may boast created for good works which god predestined foreordained you know he he set out for us um and the good works are the works of jesus in advance for us to do and so it's like the way that i think about salvation itself it isn't just a destination there's some destination stuff but like heaven comes to earth you know like heaven as nt wright talks about it is the temple space it's where god is and it's something that we can participate in like salvation isn't something that that we earn but it's it is a way of life and it's a way of life given to us by god that we can cooperate with and something that underlies that that i feel like we um are pressured and and subtly, you know, uh, that we miss be, as though it, it is subtle, um, is that God is the reality um, underlying all of our experiences in life. Like he's not like this compartment thing over here. It's like everything we do has some sort of spiritual significance. It's not like, you know, there are particular things that it's like, well, there are particular things that are sins, you know, I don't want to deny that, but it's not like it's, it's just this, if I avoid these particular little, you know, checklist box sins, then I'm, I'm good in life. Um, it's that God is wanting us to take everything in life and devote it all toward him and to cut away all the parts in us that, um, that keep us 
from being with him fully. So it's not just that like going to church or reading your Bible or doing these spiritual discipline things are the God things and everything else is, is the rest of your life to use a positive example. Yeah. Yeah. It's right. And, and the issue there, the issue there is that that stuff is good. It's obviously good. It should be obvious that it's really good. Right. But then there's the rest of the stuff too. And that's also every single moment of it can be a spiritual moment. And here's why. Here's why. You know, just a few reasons. You know, God is the creator and sustainer of the world. He is Trinity. Christ has come um, as man and revealed God to us. And as, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, all things are summed up in Jesus Christ in heaven and on earth. So like the early fathers, like uh, Irenaeus in particular, talk about this when he talks about baptism. When you're baptized, you are brought in by the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. And therefore, the, the reality behind the world, you know, like, like the world that's created and sustained by God, becomes apparent to you. Paul talks about this in Colossians chapter 2, that Christ is the mystery hidden um, within creation. You know, like the word that created the world in John 1, that word is something that that is still present. It's hidden. So like you get some, and, and this takes some weird, you know, this this can look kind of weird for us. Like, like Ephraim the Syrian, um, this early church guy, uh, talks about birds flying as a figure of the cross. Like, and he looks at that and he says, not, not just this like psychological thing, like I'm thinking about them being birds as, you know, though it's the cross because it reminds me of the cross and it's all located inside of my brain. He's like, no, that's, that's not it. The God who was crucified made the world. And he made bird wings spread out so that we could be reminded of the cross. That that was something that was intended within creation itself. Because God, who became man, was crucified with Jesus. Like that, that means that, that like that event in some weird way, to quote John Bear, predates creation itself. I mean, it doesn't predate because, you know, there's this timeline that we go through and stuff. But in as much as God experienced that, that event is eternal. It's outside of time in God's experience. Hmm. That, and that's a, that's a mind-boggling thing to think about. But it affects the way that you think about creation. It affects the way that you think about the world. When you look at a tree, the early fathers often talked about the tree as a figure of the cross. When you look at the sky, you can think about heaven. When you look at how things grow from down to up because of sunlight, you can think about this ascent towards heaven. You can think about that sort of stuff. Steeples used to be important because of that concept, because of that idea that we have, that God has um, created the world to have this upward mobility, if you will. When you look at the waters, you can think about the flood. And so if you have this scripture-soaked imagination, then you can, you can like understand what's actually going on behind the world. 
and that's that's kind of a crazy thing like but if if we believe you know that god is the creator and sustainer that he's outside of time that he's become incarnate in jesus and that that god the god that we know in jesus is the reality that this reality that is beyond us informs everything about our our life then that means that the bible itself becomes a way of understanding nature and understanding ourselves of understanding our entire world and so when i drive my car when i play with my kids when i do anything in life all of that in its its design its purpose can be a way to um contemplate god can be a means to see god and see his beauty and experience his beauty and exit like the distractions themselves the distractions in life themselves can be a means of loving god if we approach them with the right frame of mind mm -hmm. and you know that's something that that i think john cashin has really helped me with and this is what i wrote my thesis on um which was a really you know it's a really nerdy it's a really terse poorly written thing my thesis is um like it's like hey i spent three months of my right life um writing something that nobody will read and it's really really rough to read <laughs> oh useless um hopefully not useless it was useful to me and it changed me because it's it's helped me learn um categories that when I'm I'm looking at the things in the world and when I'm looking at scripture I can organize my thoughts in these four categories that he gives and these can help me um become purer inside of my heart and devote my mind to God if I'm intentional about um in th about thinking in terms of these categories mm -hmm. Is is it okay if I if I interject before you get to the four categories? So I I want to take a moment to affirm what you're saying, but I also want to challenge it with a question. Uh, first off, the affirmation. Um, I know this for a lot of us this might sound like a foreign concept, but I think for many of us in some ways this is something that we already do. I mean, I've heard plenty of people say to me, you know, I think God is trying to tell me blank or I think he's trying to teach me blank. And they're not talking about, you know, I read something in scripture. Uh, they were just out hiking, thinking about stuff, observing things. And they they felt they, they had a thought about God because of something that they encountered. Or maybe they were praying about something they, they heard in a con and they heard something in a conversation with someone and it felt clarifying to them in some way. That is, it, it's not exactly what you're talking about. Maybe it is, but but it is in some way God using nature, people, something in order to communicate to us something about about him so for those of us who feel like this is a foreign concept i just want to say like we're already kind of doing this in some fashion uh but there, there's also a kind of a question i want to ask after hearing that um you basically said god is present everywhere and because of that we can contemplate him we can pursue him and everything but but if that's the case why do i need the bible and and why do i need the church you know if 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 i can just you know take a hike and and learn about god um why why do i need to read the bible or maybe you know i've heard this one before some people say like you know i, I feel closer to god when i'm fishing 
than when I'm at church. So, and if, if you're saying I can contemplate God while I'm fishing, why shouldn't I spend my Sunday fishing? Well, like there's, there's a real <laughs> you know? sassy, there's a real sassy part of me that just says like, God doesn't give a rip about what you feel, <laughs> you know, like, like he does, he does care about your feelings, but your feelings don't dictate reality, you know, is what I mean there. So like God loves you more than you could ever possibly love yourself. And he's true. And your feelings are perceptions about the world that can be true or false. But they, they feel good, you know. Um, sometimes though, like, well, I don't I don't want to chase down the feelings thing too hard because it's it's kind of a rabbit trail, but like maybe God wants you to think about the suffering of the cross and actually experience a type of suffering so that you can become more like Jesus on the cross. Did you just compare going to church to suffering? Yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah, I did. As, Sorry, as Daniel. A, as, a, as a preacher, I'm a little offended, but I love you still. <laughs> you know, um, I've, I've actually, there have been plenty of times where I've gone to church specifically because I didn't like it. Because I, I didn't like the people, because I didn't like going. but. I believed God is here in a special way. Communion is here. And if I believe that God is here and he loves these people, then I need to be here too because that's where Jesus is. That's where I'm going to encounter Jesus and be transformed. And I got to say, the more you be around the church that you don't like, the more you love them. Um, I was just thinking about this the other day. You know, what's better than a church who loves you? A church that you love is better than a church that loves you. It, it's it's a really significant and important thing to connect with God through the means that he's given us to connect with him. The baptized, they are, they are really present with God. God is really present with them, and he loves them and all of us in a very particular way that are individualistic and self-centered notions of identity um, cannot allow us to experience because we we have that we do this thing where we try to say like my identity exists as in this independent way and then we add God to it and that's not the foundation of our identity that's a that's a horrible thing to believe because it's so hurtful to us as people and it's hurtful to one another um, God is not an add-on to your identity. He's the thing that founds your identity. You don't have any identity, any morality, any anything like that without God giving it to you in, in some way, in some way that's apparent within creation, that's apparent within culture, that's apparent within, you know, the desires that he has placed in our heart to have. Um, so, like, my response to that is, don't, please, please don't put yourself through the mistake of searching for what feels pleasurable. Pleasure isn't good in itself. God is good, and he was on the cross, and he wants you to be with him there, just as he wants you to be with him in the resurrection, just as he wants everyone to be with him, just as he wants you to experience his love that he is. And my my whole my whole thing, you know, why does scripture matter? 
that really is like scripture is the lens that gives you the peek behind what you see. You interpret everything in life through different lenses that we have, through experiences that you have, through things that you believe are true. And as people, you know, and we know this, we know this from our previous podcast, we're faulty. Like our lenses are broken. My eyes are a bit crooked sometimes, you know, like I, I don't see reality um, properly. And, and this weird thing to think about is reality is only perceived through the eyes of faith. Now, I'm not saying, you know, like, don't think about the faith and don't, you know, go through and try to defend the faith and try to, you know, show like, okay, like support the idea that God exists logically and like these other things. I'm not saying suspend your thought and don't think at all. But I'm doing this thing that Karl Barth talks about in uh, at least, you know, his dogmatics and outline. Faith, the, the system of belief that we hold as Christians is a way of seeing the world. As C.S. Lewis, um, you know, quotes St. Augustine, faith is not the thing that I see, but it's the thing by which I see. It's not the object I look at. It is the sun that lets me see everything else around me. And this is, this is why I wrote my thesis on John Cashin's Four Senses. Um, or this is something I discovered while writing that. Um, for, for Cashin and the Desert Fathers, who he represents, and the medieval tradition after him, and many Christians to the present day, I'm, the Four Senses are the way that you understand the world. Their their history, tropology, allegory, and anagogy. Oh, you my, just used a words. lot of big words. Yeah. Yes, I did. I did, um, and I'll explain each of them briefly. But like this, just just to sort of like point this out, this is like a sixteen hundred year old way of reading the Bible and of contemplating the world and of thinking about the world. These are categories that people throughout the whole of the the church's history have been like, hmm, that's pretty important. Hmm, he said that really well. Hmm, I'm going to think in these terms. Like, and then they've written in these terms, these beautiful, beautiful thoughts. And it's something that in addition to that, and I'm so excited about this, it bridges the East and the West. John Cashin, he came from the Egyptian desert. So like there's three traditions in ancient Christianity. There's the, the Latin tradition, there's the Greek tradition, and there's the Syrian tradition. So he came from, you know, the ascetic Syrian tradition guys. Um, but then he went to the, the Greek fathers and was with a major one there named John Chrysostom. And so, like, you know, he's, you know, and there's there's this, like, hey, we love each other's tradition, da-da-da. And then he moves west to, like, the far west, and he's with the Latin guys, and he passes on his tradition to them. So this is literally, like, everything is cross-pollinated. So th th this, is, this is a way of thinking about the world and about scripture that all Christian traditions can embrace, is what you're saying. Yeah, we've all been affected by this. In some way, we all practice this. And, and it, it makes sense as you go on. He says the first sense, the first form of knowing anything is history. And like, what is history? Well, it's not, I'm going to try to be fast here. History isn't just the event that happened, but it's you making sense of events. 
It's images that you bring into your mind. So like when Origen talks about um, Balaam's donkey and stuff like that, he's not just saying Balaam's donkey is like some abstract concept. He's imagining what it would be like for that donkey to talk. When we think about, you know, I was doing this the other day in class. Um, I'm, I'm auditing a Gospel of Mark class. And Jesus, when the paralytic is, is brought down through the roof, he says to him, your sins have been forgiven. Think about what it would be like to be that man. That's the only gospel that you're reading right there. Is Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven, and then later, pick up your mat and walk, go home. If those were the only words that you you had, you know, that was that was the only words that this man had to think about, Jesus. So, like, as you imagine that, it brings you into, you know, a new world. That's That's history. It's this imaginative, pausing, reconstructing what's going on inside of your mind. Not just like, you know, this river is next to this river, and then it leads over here to this river, and there's geography, and there's random facts about stuff that we don't really necessarily put a personal understanding to. It's, it's not that. It's imagining what's going on. And then there's, there's that's, that's what he calls the, um, well, yeah, the historical sense, but it's opposed to the spiritual sense. And there are three different types of spiritual senses. There's the moral sense. You know, when you're reading the Bible and you're interpreting reality, you can read um, and, and read it interpret things through the lens of how we should be living. You can see um, in the Old Testament, you know, this kind of, this is kind of what preachers do, actually. They this is like the a, application part of a sermon, basically. Yeah, like, yeah. It's this is what we've learned, and now this is what we do in response to that learning. Is that kind yeah. of what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, and so scripture becomes a way of of looking at that, um, that reality. But also, like, you know, the common sense stuff that people tell us becomes a way, like our traditions are in some way a form of this, this understanding because they're passing us down to us a way of living that we just sort of have to adopt. Um, and that, that changes the way that we, you know, understand the world. And then there's, there's allegory. And allegory is like this thing that has to do with Jesus in the present age. So like, you know, when you're reading the Gospels, you can't allegorize the Gospels. But when you're reading the Old Testament, the Old Testament is a shadow. Paul talks about this inside, well, I think Paul, but the writer of Hebrews talks about this in Hebrews 9, and uh, Paul also talks about this in, in Colossians chapter 2, that it's like a, a shadow that has this, it, that is cast by Jesus. The Old Testament is a shadow that's cast by Jesus. And so like, the real meat of what the Old Testament is, is found in Jesus. But then there's this other thing. There's anagogy. Anagogy is this thing um, that has to do with the future age. So like you can't allegorize the gospel, but you can look at baptism and think about how Jesus is going to, you know, how that brings you into the kingdom of God and how that looks forward to the day when the world will be, you know, immersed in God's presence. Um, and you can look at communion, you know, and like Paul says in 
1 Corinthians 11, um, you get to think about how this, this points to the end when Jesus is going to come back, you know, when our communion will be fulfilled. And that last one is one where it's like, you, for the Desert Fathers, it's like where God actually appears to them. For them, it's like, like experiencing his divine presence in the fullest way that you can as creatures. It's, you know, that Mark chapter nine, like we're up on the mountain with Jesus and he's transfigured. And that only is something that happens by grace. But like, you can think about these things when you're reading the Bible, because that's the reality that is is coming to us. You know, because you're a member of the church, the Bible is about you in some sense. Not you alone as an individual, but you as a member of the church. You as someone who God is redeeming and teaching how to live. And so when you read in, um, I believe it's Chronicles, about Hezekiah's Passover feast, you know, you can read this through these four different senses, which I, I kind of do like this, you know, um, there's Hezekiah inviting the northern tribes to a Passover. The smaller tribes come, the larger tribes, Ephraim, doesn't come. That's the history. And so you can imagine the, you know, being sent to Ephraim and being rejected and, you know, being laughed at and being maybe, you know, held at knife point. These scary that would be things. the history, right? Yeah, that would be the history. And then going okay. to the, the other <laughs> tribes and being accepted. And you can imagine them coming into the Passover and like having this really joyful and beautiful experience. You know, that's the history. You're imagining that. You're bringing it to your mind's eye. Um, but then there's, there's the tropology, the moral component, where it's like, you don't really want to be like Ephraim because Ephraim, you know, like doesn't get to celebrate the Passover. And when Assyria comes in, in a few years, wipes them out. And so they don't have any, any of that connection with God. Their pride, you know, like, uh, like the prophets say, when Ephraim, Ephraim was like a cow, it grew fat and then it kicked. So that's, that's the moral thing. You don't want to be like them. You want to be like the people who came to the feast. And you want to be like Hezekiah, who opens the doors to the Passover feast. And allegorically, figuratively in that way, that's our communion. Because Christ is our Passover, says Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And so what we want to do is we want to invite, you know, the other tribes, maybe the other Christians the people who are baptized, um, to have communion with us. We want to invite the sinners to, you know, seek reconciliation with us, to be humbled. And we want to be, maybe we are, you know, the tribes who are being invited to someone else's communion. We want to be the humble and to accept that, to, you know, search for Christian unity might be, like an allegorical or moral understanding of that. And that looks forward to God's judgment. Assyria is going to come down 
Are you with him at his Passover, protected with Hezekiah and the angel that slays 180,000? Or are you with Ephraim in your way of life? And you're proud and you're swallowed up and you're taken away in captivity. That's 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 the four senses reading that. And, and we can see, I feel like we can see how beautiful that is. Can can I try and restate that to see if I'm understanding what you're saying? So so like the historical reading of something would be okay. What what's actually going on here? How 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 do I imagine this? Uh, the moral reading of this would be okay. So what does this tell me about about Ian? How how should I respond to this? What do I do with this? And then the the allegorical is like okay. So what does this tell us about the church? How should the church respond to this? What's what's Jesus. going on? Jesus, yes. Um, and then the the anagogy or the future age would be okay. What does this tell me about what's to come? Is that is that basically what you're saying? The only adjustment I would make is tropology is where you find the church. Tropology is where you're mm, reading okay. yourself into the story of the Bible because you've become Israel in Jesus. What does this tell me about me? Or sorry, what does this tell me about? what's going on? What does this tell me about me and about the church? What does this tell me about Jesus? What does this tell me about the future? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. That's pretty cool. And, and this also is a way, um, I read this with, this was, this was my main point with my thesis on the desert fathers. People read them like they're saying, these are only, you know, four forms of understanding scripture. But for the desert fathers, they're four forms of understanding everything. And so, like, when, when the Desert Fathers talk about, you know, morality um, and how they should live, they look at their experiences through the lens of Scripture, and then they, they use their experiences to determine what they should do. So, like, that's the role of tradition. Tradition is, in some way, tropology. It's morally understanding what God is doing in a spiritual way. Um, and they can look at, you know, baptism in this allegorical and anagogical ways, where baptism is like Christ is really present. That's the death, burial, and resurrection. But physically, when you just bring it to your eye, you're getting wet. Like my cousin hmm. dunked me underwater in a pool. I'm not a Christian, therefore. <laughs> You know, <laughs> but Dr. Curtis ducked me under in a pool saying, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I'm a Christian. And so there's a reality that happens there. Um, there's a reality, I would say, that happens every time we eat communion. You know, our movement, the restoration movement, we, we tend to say this thing is like very figurative, but that figurative means. God isn't really there. He's not really soaking the bread like a divine sponge, like it's a divine sponge. Or he's not really mysteriously present. You're not really having his body and blood. Whereas the Catholics would say, oh, no, you are. And here's the chart that shows how it works. It's body, blood, soul, divinity, you know, and, and Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. And the Eastern Orthodox would say, yeah, it's a mystery, and he's there. And the Lutherans would say, 
well, he's there and he's kind of not there, but he's there. And then our movement is kind of like, well, you're just remembering. And, and that's, I think that's just too weak. Um, and that, that disconnects God from the world. It's actually something that bothers me on a Sunday to Sunday basis. But that's, that's an allegorical understanding of what's taking place. You're looking underneath the event to see Jesus there. And it's something that points to a future that we believe is really going to come about. You know, we are participating in this now because one day we are going to experience God and have communion with him in the fullest way that we possibly can. We're going to be the resurrected body of Christ. Well, and I think you started to, not started, I think you did answer the kind of the challenging question I had earlier about, so so how is, if we can contemplate God in everything, what then is the role of scripture or the church? I mean, it, it sounds like in order to to even get to the point where you can contemplate these things properly, you need the training that comes from God's revelation in scripture and learning God's revelation through the church, passing it on to you. Yeah. Otherwise yeah. you just make up whatever you want. I mean, I, I, that was actually, I think you also answered another question I was going to ask you, which is if we can just contemplate God and everything, what's to stop me from just making up stuff. <laughs> right. But, yeah. but I mean, like if, well, you go, you go ahead. I mean, like it, it sounds like we need, we need the foundation of scripture to be able to do this in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. You need the foundation. Well, actually, and this is a this is a funny thing, and it moves into you know like the takeaways, like what do you do with this? Okay, so there are these four forums, cool beans, bro. Um, I could have thought of that about myself. You're saying that I need to learn to live like God. <laughs> okay, you're saying that God is everywhere. <laughs> okay, but like the real meat comes when you try to practice it, um, because the foundation is not reading the Bible. That's a weird thing to say, <laughs> okay? That's a weird thing to say. Like, how is the foundation not reading the Bible? Well, because your experience of church doesn't start necessarily, for most people, with reading the Bible. It starts with practices that you do. Like, try to say that you can really understand the Bible without a vibrant prayer life. You're insane. You are insane. That is not how you, you will not come to understand God well without prayer. Try to understand the Bible alone without other Christians to model what you're looking at. You know, I mean, we've we've seen it so many times and we ask this question so many times in our Sunday schools. Like, hmm, what have you seen someone model such and such from this Bible verse? And it's like, oh yeah, my grandpa, he really modeled the cross because he was so sweet to us and, and whatever. And he would just be there on the the, you know, the drop of a hat and he'd give somebody the shirt off of his back and like, like that sort of stuff. Like you see this enacted. To, uh, to, to quote Dr. Cohn from one of our previous conversations, we're not saying that scripture isn't authoritative and we're not saying that scripture isn't the, the primary authority. It is it yeah. by itself. It's got what it, what it needs, but we need help. We, we need help in order to be able to access it. Yeah. Yeah. And so like in this, this way weird way you know we're introduced to what the bible means 
by what we do as the church. That's why tradition is important. And it's not something that it's like, you know, it's this ideal that you have to pursue in contrast to the Bible, but it's just the reality. It's what happens. And so the way you live changes the way that you read the Bible. And like, let's say that, you know, and we've all, I feel like we've all seen this. I was in a Bible study when I was a kid, well, early on in college, and I heard this lady say, well, complaining is not really a sin, right? Because you like to complain. And in my head, I was thinking like, and I didn't say this, maybe I should have, but- For you it is, that's what I want to say. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know who you are, but for you it is. Complaining is not really a sin. And then I was like, Paul says, do all things without grumbling and complaining so that you may be pure and uh, undefiled, uh, shining as lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom, oh yeah, yeah, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. and he, he like that's pretty that's a pretty big reason not to complain like you know that's a really big glorious identity and it's like i just want to be like israel in the desert you know and i swear it's not wrong god was wrong to kill them over the quail god was in the wrong there like that's that's the she would never say this she would never say this but our morality as my papa would say dictates our theology john chapter 3 talks about this You know, people don't come to the light lest their deeds be made clear to them. And so, like, when there's that light that's shown on us, if we're not, to the extent that we're living the faith, we're going to be able to make sense of that. But we'll often try to justify what we're doing and rationalize what Mm -hmm. we're doing because it's uncomfortable, because it's hard, because there's this scary thing. You know, it's like um, looking, looking at ourselves at our sin, it's that uncomfortable thought of death that Pascal talks about, you know, because it forces us to look at ourselves, analyze the painful parts of us, and implies that we have to be different. And the only way that we can is by going to God and asking for his mercy and going to the church and asking for help. Well, and I mean, this is why Paul, when he's talking about the qualifications for Christian leaders, all but one of his qualifications is are character related, because how you act is going to dictate what you teach. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's I think it's consistent with Scripture to say the way that you live determines how you read Scripture. Yeah. Which is a scary thought. You know, like, wait a minute, you mean we can't figure this thing out from the top down to the bottom? We can't just figure this one thing out and then proceed chronologically to all the next steps? It's like they're always all going on all at the same time. It's like spaghetti. Yeah, like they're, they're always all going on all at the same time. And good luck parsing that out. But it's what happens. And so you have to live the Christian life with the church through, you know, with the scriptures being constant in prayer and trying to think of everything through the lens of Jesus. If you want to do this responsibly, it's not it's not going to be easy, but it's a lifelong pursuit. It's a way of becoming more fully human by becoming like Jesus. And so if you want to practice this, change your life, become holy, memorize as much scripture as you can, if you can, 
and start thinking about those scriptures. Don't just like keep it in the back of your head for a test, like chew it up, eat it again and again and again. And use that as a means of praying, you know, as Brad East said the other week, the Bible is the language of prayer. Just mm. love that quote. And as you do that, look at the world and actively think about how all of this is somehow about Jesus and us and Jesus and the world that Jesus is going to bring. Jesus is the interpretive key to all of reality. Cool story, bro. <laughs> that was really good. I, I really enjoyed this. Yeah. Uh, I hope it's a cool story. Um, I hope it's true. And I hope that it blesses someone. And speaking of blessings, would you be willing to pray us out? I feel like I've rambled on um, long enough, maybe too long. Definitely pray. Yeah. And at the very least, I was blessed. I really, I really enjoyed this. It was, I think it was helpful for me. Anyways, let's pray. Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name. We give you thanks for this day. Um, and we thank you for the fact that in every way imaginable, you are revealing yourself to us and you are you are pursuing relationship with us. Um, I ask that what was said here uh, would be helpful for anyone who happens to be listening, that we would be able to pursue you through reading scripture. Um, and as we grow in our knowledge of you, that we would be able to pursue you uh, through every way that you reach out to us. Uh, God, we love you. We want to serve you. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray all of these things now. Amen.